You're listening to Hidden Battles Podcast, brought to you by HiddenBattlesFoundation.org and our sponsors, John Dot Credit Union, DCU Digital Federal Credit Union, and Roads Remodeling out of National New Hampshire. Welcome to the Battlecast. Hey, everybody. Thanks for um, jumping into the next podcast of Hidden Battles. Um, hey, on the phone, I have somebody who I've actually looked up to for years. Um, I, I've had the pleasure of meeting him for lunch and sitting down and talking with him. Uh, he is always my go-to when I need to talk to somebody or I have questions about uh, mental health with first responders. Um, I have Boston PD, Brian Fleming, on the phone with me. Brian, you there? Yes, I am. Brian, th- first of all, thanks for, you know, I know you're busy, and thanks for getting on here with me. I, I think um, because we do mental health and you're so pinnacle, especially when you ask anybody in this area of, of Massachusetts, New Hampshire, hey, who can I, you know, who can I go to for this question? They're like, oh, Brian Fleming. It's always Brian Fleming. And, and Rightfully so. Um, hey, so let's start with a little background of you. Boston PD, right? How long? Yep. 32 years in one day. In one day, right? I want to make sure they didn't get any of my, my retirement pension. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't want them coming back to you and saying, oh, you only actually did uh, 364 days. Sorry. You know, can't put, do put it. A, yeah, yeah, you can't put it past them either. You just can't. So uh, during, and you weren't just a normal police officer. I mean, you were on the SWAT team. You were on the motor unit. Um, you were you were part of America's first and finest Boston PD. Yep, yep. It was thirty two years. It's uh, I, I I like the fact that I'm retired now, but uh, I'm very grateful that I'm starting my seventh year retirement, which a lot of people have just had some deaths in the past few weeks that never made it to retirement or had very little. So that's another important subject we can talk about. And, you know, and a lot of things too. A lot of people don't understand is uh, post retirement suicide is huge in the law enforcement community. And I think it's a lot of times people say, well, why is that? I think it's a uh, task and purpose. Um, yeah. You know, done it for more than half their lives. And, you know, and then they miss that camaraderie. They miss that culture. They miss the, the connection, right? Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's true. A lot. Of, a lot. Of, I talked to guys that uh, just ran into one a couple of times last week because he works for funeral uh, service. But, um, I said, what the hell are you doing out here? He goes, I got to do something. I can't stay home. And I got to tell you, Scott, I I would be happy sitting on my front porch drooling for the next 30 years. I've had enough excitement for one lifetime. <laughs> I honestly, so when I, I retired back in 2019 and I medically retired, so I didn't do the, the duration like you did. I, I went through a lot with not so much task and purpose because I literally, I started this in 2017 doing this. So I, I transitioned well. But I, I am busier now, retired, than I was when I was working. Yep. But you know what? It's at your pace. Yes, absolutely. So yep. well, it's, it's at my wife's pace. I was <laughs> <trying to go. laughs> a boss. <laughs> You're the boss. The real. I am honestly. I'm the Wizard of Oz, and she's the man behind the curtain. It's just the way it is. <laughs> yeah. Any special purchases like that? Yeah. Exactly. So, so we were talking. We we talked a, a bunch about stuff. Now. Um, I've, I've openly said that I had a struggle with my post-traumatic stress and stuff like that. And, and you openly, I, I, uh, I think sometimes when I, I read your story, it helped me open up a little more to the fact mm-hmm. that like, I don't really care if I, if I horrify people with my story anymore, because I know I'm going to connect with one person and that might save somebody's life or open up the, the conversation of, Hey, it's, it's all right to not be all right. You know? Right. Um, do you want to talk about your story or should we just direct them to Google and Brian Fleming, Boston PD, where they can read it anywhere? <laughs> well, they might have some things I might say. Sometimes it just, um, 
you know, I say things that I haven't talked about before. So um, I guess I can start at the beginning, if that's all right. Sure, absolutely. Okay. So I grew up in the Do- uh, Dorchester part of Boston, you know, city kid. And uh, from there, went to work at Gillette uh, for actually for 10 years uh, after high school. And uh, in March of uh, March 30th, 1983, um, I, w- I left Gillette and I went into the Boston Police Academy. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, I didn't know it then, um, but I had a drinking problem. You know, I didn't realize it. And uh, I woke up in a class of 109 other recruits or 110 of us. And uh, honest to God, in the first two weeks, I think uh, all the drinkers got together and we were, I think we were two weeks in the academy. It would never happen today. There's way too many cameras around. But we went out in, uh, into a bar room and, and decided to have a few. You know, that was the sec- end of the second week in the academy. And, you know, again, I didn't know I had a drinking problem because everybody drank with me, like me. And um, I went into a blackout. I don't remember. I was finding out stuff I was doing, I don't know, how, how many uh, years later. And, um, you know. If that happened, if anybody ever walked in and roll in there and uh, recruit uniforms in a liquor establishment, that's automatic dismissal. And, uh, you know, I always get the impression someone was watching over me, and I have a firm belief that that is the case, especially the way my life has unfolded. But I went back into the academy, and uh, I think it was only 16 weeks at the time. And then we, the first year from being sworn in, so it was only six months academy, six months uh, probation. So when I first uh, got on, I was working in uh, District 4 and, and um, you know, I was probably off my post because a friend of mine was doing a detail up in Boylston Street, so I went up to see him. And as I was standing, there was a, there was a cabbie um, blocking Boylston Street. Traffic was backed up. I told him to, I told him to move and he kind of gave me the FU and I was like, he did not just do that, you know. Now, I'm not a kid in the corner anymore. I'm, a, I'm someone in police uniform with everybody's watching. Yeah. And I could feel the red coming up. And uh, uh, we were going back and forth. Finally, he moved. I got called into the station. In those days, they had a deputy in each station. Um, deputy superintendent was a guy named Feeney. And um, he says, were you up on Boylston Street yesterday? I'm saying, how the hell did he know that? Yeah. And... Uh, you know, the next day I was launched out to the suburbs of Area E, walking around a graveyard uh, by the Dedham Line. And um, I said to myself, what the hell happened, you know? Yeah, who and, did you piss off? Yeah, well, it was, I guess it was obvious it was someone powerful. So, yep. um, you know, of course, all the old timers are asking me, how did you get that post? You know, <laughs> uh, I would have liked to add that. <laughs> yeah. Plus, I was insulted being thinking the greatest crime Friday I ever lived, and I'm, I'm walking around a graveyard for me, you know? Yeah. But what I, what I found out later in life was that alcoholism has a, uh, you know, a sort of what we call character defects or personality traits um, that can get you in trouble without even drinking anger, resentment, you know, yeah. self centered issues, all that stuff. So, anyway, I go out there for a while, and like, if anything happens, we all know it's through politics. And uh, I asked someone if I could get over on the motorcycle unit because a friend of mine had just gone over. 
in about a year run, I, I got uh, transferred was in 84. I get transferred to the motorcycle. And uh, now I'm driving around on a brand. None of the guys wanted the new bike because they have so much of their own chrome on it. So I got a nice 83 <laughs> brand new bike. And uh, they didn't have a lot to do in those days. It's not like it is today. Yeah. My beat was Fields Corner to Lowell Mills, and I grew up in Lowell Mills. So and I lived on the district. Um, you grew up not I, far from where I grew up. Where's that? I grew up on Winter Street up by the Mathis School. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, yeah, I lived on the Lace Curtain Irish End. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so, I mean, I was having a hell of a time, you know. But there was a secret that I, you know, I, I still didn't think I had an alcohol problem. But there's something that was really becoming uh, the source of a lot of guilt. And I was, I was using drugs when I drank. Uh, And um, in those days, you know, it wasn't even widely known or suspected, carried a tremendous amount of guilt about that. And I know today why I couldn't stop, but because I denied having an alcohol problem, but, but the other stuff I'm thinking, you know, that could get me in trouble. I should do something about it. And honestly, God, um, about a thousand times I'd come home after being out all night or two nights or whatever it is and walk into, I walked into my bedroom after I promised myself uh, I, I could handle this. And I, and I know a lot, it doesn't have to be drugs or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, you have to realize that I can't do this without help, but I, I decided that, uh, you know, the only way out of it was to commit suicide. So, um, I took out a snub nose 38 that I had. I put it to my head with the finger on the trigger. And I was 110% sure that that was the answer. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was fully convinced. Uh, now, whether I didn't have the courage to pull the trigger, I'll tell you one thing that I learned later in life that that 38 has a 12 pound trigger. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine who committed suicide in 2009, John Riblon, he was a sniper on the SWAT team. Um, we had just gotten SIG 45 that had a three pound trigger. And once he even breathed on that, he was gone. Yeah. And that, that could have been me, but for some reason it wasn't. Yep. And uh, I went back and forth, back and forth, put the gun down, passed out, I fell asleep, and just went on my merry way doing the same thing because I just was in complete denial. Yeah. About, um, about a month later, uh, I was out. Uh, on a bender in somewhere, and I uh, went into seizure because of the drugs and alcohol. Um, and I ended up going into a, a hospital and coming out of a blackout. And I remember the EMT asked me, he said, did you, do you know where you are? And I looked at those tin tiles on the wall and said, I think so. And uh, my tongue was all uh, chewed up from the sea. I was a mess. Yeah. And uh, I will never forget as long as I lived, the feeling I had when my eyes opened and the feeling was amid all that guilt and shame and remorse was a sense of peace because whatever it was, I knew it was over. And, um, so I was in the hospital uh, for a couple of weeks and then, uh, I had heard that I was going to get fired and that's, that's, I'm obsessed about that, you know, never mind the alcohol drugs. I, you know, because, uh, you know, I had gone to get help, but it wasn't from the right people. Uh, but the bottom line was that they were fighting a urinalysis, the first urinalysis uh, back in 85. Mm-hmm. The, the union couldn't very well stick up me when they're, when they're fighting a urinalysis. So yeah. 
and then people in headquarters zeroed in on me, and uh, and rightfully so. But uh, I went away to a rehab, and I was ready. You know, I had that gift of desperation, um, and uh, I. Uh, I actually elected to say another week because I didn't feel I was ready. When I came out, um, had a meeting with the commissioner and, you know, politics and lawyers and finding everybody involved. And Mickey wrote to the commissioner and he had made up his mind and that was it. And uh, see, November 14, 1985, uh, they dropped off the discharge termination papers at my home. And, uh, and I read them. And they, you know, they they didn't say anything about drugs or alcohol. They really? said that I used to answer questions in interrogation or to write a report, both things which I did. So they were grasping at straws, hoping that I'd go away. And obviously I didn't. But what I what I did from that point, I went to the peer support. It was called the stress unit at the time. And Eddie Donovan, one of the first directors, Eddie was really the guy that popularized that way back then. Yeah. Uh, the first in the country, the Boston Police Station was the first employee assistance program in the country. Some say the world for police officers. Yeah. And uh, I attended um, meetings here a few times a week. And then I went to 12 step meetings outside. And, um, you know, I, I was doing everything I could. And I got to tell you that for a lot of times people, uh, say if you don't go uh, to those programs to get sober, you're not going to stay. Well, it's not entirely true because if I hadn't lost my job, I wouldn't have been. Well, until that, I that was your rock bottom, right? Yeah. And I mean, I realized that if I don't get sober, I'm never getting that job back. And I got to tell you, I'm, <laughs> actually the guy that was my lawyer um, had been sober for 25 years. Great guy. And all the people that I had, all the friends that I had that were lawyers, none of them would even touch the case. I said, there's no way you're getting that back, you know? Yeah. So after about a year, I decided I got to start working. And I um, <laughs> I said, Jesus, I don't specialize in anything, so maybe I'll just be a laborer or something like that. So I go and I worked for uh, Boston Housing Authority. And uh, and I found out what real work was like, and I really didn't like it too much. Yeah. Um, Carrying tiles and bathtubs up and down stairs, and, and it's uh, it was it wasn't uh, it was a humility lesson, is what it was. And um, after a few years of that and taking care of myself by going to meetings and all that stuff and seeing therapists and clinicians and all, I decided that you know what, I don't think uh, I'm not going to get that back because it was stuck from it was in Superior Court, I believe. Yeah. But there was another guy, and you might know the case. It's called Connie versus Springfield. Mike Connie yep. had been through it years before, and he was at the Supreme Court level. So on July 18th, actually it was my mother's birthday, 1989, decision came out that uh, in favor of Mike Connie, and then the department didn't have a leg to stand on. So we were both reinstated. Uh, and um, what happened was they had a – they had to start paying me, so they started sending me checks but they, at home, but they wouldn't put me to work. And I'm saying, well, this is okay. I can handle this one. But then I found out that they were going to try to put me to an academy and fire me. And um, oh, Yeah, there's the politics sneaking back up, right? Oh, so then um, 
my lawyer threatened the commissioner with contempt of court if he isn't in the academy on Monday. We're coming up to the contempt of court order. Yeah. So Monday, the back of some academy class, um, and a couple of weeks later, I landed at the booking desk in B2. And uh, I was just reading this one. They have 40 murders last year. That Jeez. year, 1990, we had 152 murders. And um, most of them came through that booking desk. It was a friend of mine who walked by. Yeah. <laughs> he says, what did you do to get in that seat? And I said, I ain't got time to tell you. you know? <laughs> yeah. The next. You know, work in district like that, someone's always getting in the, yep. in the crap. So uh, the next night or two nights later, someone else got in the crap. He took my seat. I went out to the front desk with a girl named Sylvia. And um, and then three nights later, I was out in the street. And that's when it started. You know, I was uh, working as a cop in a great working district. Uh, so so it, was a, it was like being a rookie all over again. Actually, it was because I was clear-headed and... Um, yeah, it's a you whole know, new policing style for you now. Oh, I mean, oh. It's unbelievable because, I mean, it was funny. There was, there was so many guns around that gun pinches were like um, were like getting tickets in other districts. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. it was, it's, so, so guys in Erie A were nothing against cops in Erie A, but guys in Erie A were getting days off of like 50 parking ticks a month and guys that are making pinches with guns several a month, they're getting nothing. So yeah. it's so kind of like that. <laughs> yeah. We, we had our own ceremony down the silver shield one night and, uh, they got the message. So there's been a little more, yeah. uh, some of that work done. But anyway, so, um, I forced my way. I, 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 I can't guys that spend 30 years down there. I don't know how they do it. Um, God bless them. You know, some people like that. Like some people like Mastaffs, those things kill me. Yeah. And I was about three years down there and, um, and I kind of willed my way on my way back on the bikes. And, um, so I was back there. Uh, I think it was for the, to put the tall ships together in 92. So I went back there and, um, after the tall ships was over, they asked if anybody wanted to stay. So I think there were only like about 10 of us that stayed. And uh, gradually it grew up to, it uh, got more and more. I think we had, went up to 50 or 60 bikes by the, by the next few years. And, uh, and it was also the, used to call the entry and apprehension team was a smart team at the time. So it was like a um, 724, you got a page back then. And if you're not doing parades or escorts, you're doing uh, training or raids. And, uh, you know, um, I, I think I went back there for a few years and I went uh, back to district four. They were looking for a traffic guy. So that's what we do a lot. Um, and I went back to, uh, district four, Charlie Salucci was the boss and he gave me the traffic car. And, um, you know, I, uh, it was pretty easy for me. You know, I knew all the motor vehicle laws and there was plenty of that stuff on, on district four. So I did that. And then uh, I did something I never thought I'd do uh, because I've had uh, ADD my whole life. <laughs> a lot of people bust my Aggies about it because, uh, you know, they're saying, yeah, hyper, right? You know, uh, I got all kinds of nicknames, the pest, and some I can't mention on the air. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, I decided to take a test, and I didn't do it in the usual way. I did it with lectures that I had uh, pre-recorded. And that year there was uh, software 
and the software on each page covered probably six or seven points on each page that you needed to know. So that's basically how it's done. I, my, I don't think I read all the books. Yep. And uh, and I was uh, promoted, uh, let me see, it was uh, December 97, I was promoted uh, to sergeant. And um, I was 33 out of 444 that took the exam. And I was number 33. Yep. And, uh, and drastic lifestyle change, as you know. So I was out in Brighton, which was unusual. I don't know why they did that, but it was on the same area. And um, I was doing midnights and I was dying. And uh, I felt like I was drinking again. It was just like so unhealthy, you know. And um, I was offered a position back on the bikes. I really didn't want to do it because, um, I don't know, there was just like for me, you know, a lot of the guys who were drinking after work, and it was kind of not the drinking that bothered me, but any SWAT team or anything we've gone uh, of met across the country, it's like you automatically start firing insults at each other that are like razor sharp, yeah. and uh, and just just to put that chink in your arm and see where you stand. I was kind of sick of it, you know. But I said, "The hell with it! I needed I, I need to get out of the lost house." So I went over there, and uh, geez, I think we were there a week. And we had a um, we had a raid. It was like right around the corner from the station uh, of a guy, a suspect that had shot at a Brookline cop. And uh, as we were going into the apartment, he uh, shot and killed himself. And um, and that was like two weeks in. So I knew it was gonna start getting busy, and it did. Um, you know, it's. Uh, <clears throat> It was a go, go, go offer. I probably missed the first six or seven years of my kids. Uh, my wife was basically raised them because I, was, I wasn't working. I was training or doing escorts or something. Mm -hmm. Great outfit because in a good time to be there, uh, we had a, a special relationship with the uh, Mass State Police bike unit under, under Billy Cedarquist and uh, our new boss, Bob O'Toole. Um, <laughs> they did a lot of great. And it was it was like a really good working relationship, and it's good that it was because we were very busy with the Clintons coming back and, and all kinds of heads of state coming in. And you know, I often used to think that I'm sitting in a room at the Secret Service planning routes for escorts, and uh, I'm saying if these people ever know my background, I wouldn't be within five miles of this guy. <laughs> but now we know his background, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, but I, I met a lot of uh, great people. I have a lot of great pictures on my office walls. And it's not just this, it's not to say that, no, I'm a dig me. I look what I did. Yep. It's the people that you can come back from stuff like this yep. and, and resurrect your career. So um, I stayed there for about, you know, what the hell once we went through the very first Patriots Super Bowl. Yeah. I got one, you know, those pay, the little pay, they went little, they looked like little TV screens that we had. Uh, they had 12 bikes and one supervisor in Kenmore Square for the uh, for the celebration. And all of a sudden, I'm watching it on TV, and all the pages started going up. Get the F in here. And uh, we go in, and, you know, of course, you know what happened. The cars yeah. get so. And we did those subsequently. We lost that police captain's son. We lost, uh, and uh, was it 2000? Six or four. I'm not sure what year yeah, it was. 2004 but... for the Red Sox. That was a, a an S show. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was, yeah, Victoria Snowgrove. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, uh-huh. that was um that was on Lansdowne Street, correct? Yep. Yeah. Uh, basically, someone who wasn't certified or was certified. I, I never really get the true story, but the, the round, which is supposed to be less lethal, went into her eye socket and ki- her brain and then killed her. Yeah. And it was devastating. I didn't know anything about it until I got back to the um, base at 3.30 in the morning. And I saw all the guys sitting there with their head on me. What the hell happened? They told me. It's so good. And ironically, I live right down the street from the church where we they asked the four sergeants to do the escort for her funeral. The family did. Oh. So it was a lot of good stuff, a lot of bad stuff. But, um, you know, um, came to about uh, 2006 and uh, the... Um, they were looking for someone with certifications to get on the range. I kind of popped up at the right minute. And uh, in 2006, um, yeah, I went down to the range and squawed them um, and became a supervisor down there, uh, myself and Larry Fisher. And it was a great job, but it was like being stuck to the ceiling with stress for years. And all of a sudden, it's like, Oh, Jesus, it took me two weeks to wind down. I was like, holy man, this is this is a nice job. I like this, you yeah. know. Well now you now you're accustoming yourself from go, go, go to sit back, yeah. take your time, do things yeah. you know, with precision, right? Opposed yeah. to run, run, run position. Uh, yeah. Oh. yeah. Hey Brian, up let me just break real quick for uh, one yeah. of our sponsors and we'll come right back. This podcast is brought to you by Digital Federal Credit Union, DCU.org. DCU Personal Banking Loans. What can DCU save you? See how you can save money with DCU Banking and Loan Services. Switch to DCU today. Digital Federal Credit Union offers a range of products that will save you money. Switch today for free personalized quote. This portion of the podcast is brought to you by Jean.CreditUnion. Jean.CreditUnion has been helping members in the community for over 100 years. A credit union's mission is people helping people. And at Jean.CreditUnion, They support that mission by educating and guiding their members to make smart financial choices. Call them at 978-452-5001 or visit online at jdcu.com. That's jdcu.com to learn more about how Jean.CreditUnion can help you. I like, I, I remember a lot, like think about the stress too, um, like the special details and stuff. And when I was on Nemlec, we had actually been in Boston for the 2007 uh, Red Sox. I was there yeah. for the Celtics. Uh, I was there for, luckily, the Patriots, when the Patriots won the Super Bowl the next four times that I was in Boston, nothing really happened too much. Yeah. Um, cause I, think, I think at the time, um, the commissioner actually figured out how to wrangle the college kids. Cause a lot of people from, from Boston don't understand that there's so many colleges in Boston that right. when given the opportunity to act like an a-hole— and yeah. add alcohol, well, it, you know, the opportunity yeah. arises, and then it doesn't even matter what, what the celebration was for. It's just it's just a melee. And, um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, so you go from that to now you get to sit back, um, relax a little. Now, how did that affect your, your mental health, seeing that you are, like you said, you're a wound-up ADD type of personality? Yeah. <laughs> it, um, it, was, uh, it was a welcome relief and of course i'm not thinking anything about retirement at this point i think i was like um let's see probably uh eight or ten years from retirement and um um it was very healthy i was able to you know get a workout in the schedule was a little lax and i could go to my meetings etc etc and there's no like high pressure except when the recruits came through that was really uh that's like double shifts for like 
several weeks, you know. Uh, but still, it was nothing compared to the other jobs I had. So I was down there, and uh, I had planned on staying there. I wasn't going anywhere. And um, Danny Linsky, who was, he was my partner when I was in Roxbury for a while. And uh, we became very close. And he had a history of alcoholism in his family. And um, he understood where I was coming from. So when, you know, things like that happen, we, uh, I have a, we call that God's way of remaining anonymous because anything I learned in the academy, I was in a gray out. So he was like a walking law book. And oh, nice. uh, I, often, I often kid him about you were the fat guy. So I ran, I did all the running. And, uh, you know, he'd, he'd, he had a keen, keen mind for, uh, for crime and how to set it up. And anyway, he called me and he says, hey, look at uh, someone's, Herbie White's retiring down the stretch unit. Do you want to take over? I said, absolutely not. I says, I am done. I have a, I had a lot of stress. I'm at a good place in my life now and blah, blah, blah. So little unknowns to me, he has people hammering me, asking me, hey, you know, you're going down the stretch unit. No, I'm not. I'm staying right there. <laughs> Oh, actually, I relented, and uh, in June of 2010, I became the director uh, of the unit that I walked into, Helpless and Hopeless, 25 years prior. I mean, having been a client there 25 years, I had a pretty good good idea of how the place ran, and et cetera. And uh, it was a great place. And I talk about stress level back up again, because now... You know, you're trying to keep people from getting fired. You're trying to keep people from killing themselves, uh, trying to set up um, treatment. And uh, there's a whole lot of things that go into that job that you really don't have a lot of control over. Yep. It was a very, um, it was a learned experience because uh, even though I've been putting people in detoxes on an informal basis and treatment for years, now <clears throat> it's our primary cause. And, um, I get to know, find out a lot about insurance, what it covers and doesn't cover mostly. And, um, you know, while I was there towards the, uh, the first, let me see, 2012 was really a period, of course, it was before the marathon bombing, but it was the year before we had had nine police shootings in a six week period in April of that year. And I don't know whether it was, the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do because I got a lot of crap about it. But I, what I did was I offered our services to Southern New Hampshire. They had a couple of shootings up there. The chief was killed in Greenland, yep. I think. And and then there was uh, one of the Manchester officers. I forget his name, Danny something. He was uh, shot behind a school. Um, and you had the and other one up had, in Franconia. Lot Notch, that one was right in that same time frame too. Yeah. And then... Um, down in Massachusetts, there was a some kind of crazy love triangle with state and Boston and uh, bank robbery that went through I don't know how many communities. Anyway, so these nine incidents and the t- towns involved were pretty numerous. So the first place we did is we went up to New Hampshire and there were several debriefings with the critical incident team that we did up there. And um, they had a, oh, it's good the hell, the chief's name is very proactive in peer support. And um, they, like we, we were talking about earlier, that within one year, they had a comprehensive peer support bill for police officers, you know. And um, But every town that we went to, no one, not one, knew anything about SISM or peer support. Or if they did know about it, they didn't have any resources at all. So 
we became resources for all those people. And actually, some of my officers were burnt out uh, from dealing with so many debriefings. But I like to have people who have been through the type of incident. So the guys who have been in shootings on our team would do most of the debriefings because it's important that they identify. Absolutely. So, um, so I had to promise myself that we're going to expand this network. Um, uh, we're going to get some more police teams on the net. That's put back in my, uh, my brain locker for a while. But and of course, next thing, um, was a bombing at the uh, 2015 marathon. And um, even though directly the peer support unit, anybody who's considered non-essential personnel put in uniform and out on the course. So I was with uh, four or five monasteries up, up by BC. And um, I had worked that uh, marathon probably 25 out of my 32 years. And most of the time we were right near a block away from the finish line after doing escorts back and forth. And I always saw that when the, when the camera trucks come down Calm Ave, the runners take a right on Hereford and you're supposed to open the gate. So the camera trucks go straight down Calm Ave. There was never anybody there to do that. So we, we just took it upon ourselves to do it. So now we were out in, out in BC and I hear all this commotion on the radio and, uh, I'm saying to myself, something must have happened. So that's what came to mind. I thought a truck had gone through the crowd and and hit somebody. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. I told the guy, listen, I'm going to get on there, see what's going on. And um, we went down there on the way in, on the way into Huntington Ave, I uh, heard the word explosion or bomb, et cetera. And when I got there, it was about about 15 minutes after the, after the explosions and, uh, I started walking down Ring Road to Boylston Street, and I was stopped by an officer to look at we're going to set off the third bomb, and that was actually turned out to be a bag of cameras. But what that at that point, so 15 minutes later, that means 260 plus people, wounded, killed, whatever, were evacuated from the finish line area in 15 minutes. EMS, fire, cops unbelievable job that is crazy yeah but you know why if that was a Benway Park or Foxwell Stadium that would have never happened over a lot more people yeah probably people forget that they had over 100 ambulances lined up for runner injuries yep and thank god they have in the proximity to all the emergency rooms in that area we're able to save a lot of lives so hats off to all of them and the medical personnel so I walked down there, and as I'm walking down there, two female female uh, partners were walking towards me. One of them seemed to be comforting the other one. And um, <clears throat> I said, hey, what's going on? And I took her aside and kind of uh, did what we call it diffusing, let her, let her talk for a while, and uh, then I walked her to an ambulance. And cops started walking and going into ambulances and, but that, that first person I met, um, she was given uh, Lindsay Liu CPR when she died. And um, so she was, uh, you know, one of the first ones we were targeting after everything was over. But, you know, I got to tell you that uh, standing in that stationary area at that 50-minute mark, the detective has already set up an investigation command post in one of the restaurants. Um, uh after they cleared Boylston Street, I looked around, 
And I only had two, two, I think I had two or three officers from peer support autism uh, in that area. Now I have, I look around this cops, a lot of young cops. Yeah. Staring off into space, that thousand yard stare. And I hadn't been down oil since week, so I didn't know what was going on. But we knew we had to start grabbing these kids. And when um, I had cruises come from everywhere, I see uh, a kid just like completely out of it. I put him in the car and had uh, him take down the unit where the clinicians were yep. stayed and have them uh, professionally taken care of and we were doing this probably till about 10 o'clock that night and uh tommy famalari was my my system uh director uh leader of the team because he was out of the peer support unit and tommy had been down 9 11. in fact uh, our system team had sent two teams down to um 9 11 and uh i think that's before even new york had a system team so they had a lot of experience down there, and um, and my relationship with uh, Dan Lunsky was important because we report directly to the superintendent chief, so there's no red you know red flags in between going up and a smooth information travel. And I said, listen, I need everybody on that system team. I think there were like 35 of them. I need them detailed to the peer support unit, and that was done the next morning. And we had a morning briefing, yeah. uh, and the, everybody was sent out on um, visibility posts. And something I'll never forget is, well, Tommy said, you know, first things they did down there was they had cases of water, driving around, and handed, checking on officers to see how they're doing. And what they ran into was down in that area, the officers from District 4 who would standing out there kind of in a daze, they still had blood on their hands from the day before. Um, they had been there all wow. night. Yeah. And um and then we started getting them relieved and getting them the help they needed. And uh then it was just like up and running and uh we had a command post at the um at the peer support unit. Now we had to start figuring out who needed to be debriefed, who who didn't, where were they, because pops are never where they're supposed to be, you know, they swap with people oh, and they, yeah. We wow. had to go. Through, we had to go through batting orders, pitches, interviews, videos, and find out. So we get the right person in the right debriefing. That's very important. Yep. And people in that debriefing need to be able to experience the same thing at the same time. So we targeted. Uh, I think over that nine-day period, we did 660 officers were debriefed um, in 57 debriefings. And we did that at the electrical hall down, thanks to Mike Monahan down at the IBEW in Dorchester. Uh, yep. And uh, I think the, one of the most important things about that is that for the first time in those officers' career, most of them had never saw any kind of help. You know what I mean? They were The, the door was cracked open. Yeah. So it was a negative event. There was a positive side to it that helped uh, – for example, people, when we have to have debriefings, we have food, especially free food, cops like that. Oh, and, yeah. Um, free is for me. Yeah. And uh, they would sidle up to you because we had team members afterwards in the room. And um, 
they would say, hey, I got this other thing. Can I talk to you about it? You know, like it could have been child abuse as a kid, which which I couldn't believe um, how many of our bosses had, that had been a problem for. Um, and uh, so it, it really kind of got us into the mode of accepting it. And it still has its uh, problems nowadays because, um, you know, no one really wants to talk about stuff, but we have, we've made great strides in that area. Well, we've, we've talked, and, and my, my follow-up question to that is we have a lot of people from peer support um, that are police officers and EMTs and stuff like that um, who, like, what I'm listening, because obviously I'm do, I do peer support, but I think, so what What helps you? What helps you from, because you, you have to decompress from hearing all this and doing your the de-stress and the debriefs and stuff. I mean, where? what is your go-to to help you stay mentally fit after doing 600 and something debriefs, you know what I mean? Or, or on debriefs on officers that were at that tragic event that you were at, you know, that catastrophic event. I mean, where, where do you go? What is your go-to? We, um, there's a protocol that has all members of the team debriefed after a major event. So what happens is team members eyeball each other. You know, they talk, see how you're doing. Cause we can see people that are affected. Yep. And we have clinicians that are available. Um, and but as a matter of protocol, people who do all, all these debriefings, after an event like that, a major event like that, they're all um, sent to debrief themselves with a clinician one-on-one. And I'm sure that some slipped through the cracks and didn't want it, but that's that's common. And But they know what they have to do with something. We start seeing signs. So... Generally, that's the protocol, but cops being cops, sometimes they, uh, you know, they don't want to do that. But uh, so it was a very learned experience. Um, it went off. I mean, for something as complicated as that, um, I can't believe that there wasn't some kind of major screw up. Uh, we had New York come up and help us. Yep. Uh, that, that was awesome. That was a great psychological effect. So when people come in to get debriefed at the IBW, uh, our team members and New York team members were dispersed in the audience for uh, we give them a presentation about what's going to happen. And when they saw the New York people, they kind of like said, wow, they came up here for us. You know what I mean? So it had a positive effect in that way. We've been tied with the New York people for a long time. Papa is their team of that name. So, you know, so it's, as much as as much as like the Yankee, um, Yankees, Boston Sox rivalry is, if you go to Boston, uh, excuse me, if you go to New York and, and as soon as they hear that you're from Boston uh, yeah. and then they find that you're in law enforcement, there is a huge like line of respect that is yeah. given from NYPD, even Port Authority and stuff like that. Because, yeah, yeah I mean, when we talk about peer support, uh, people look up to Boston PD and they look up to NYPD uh, just yeah. because of the professionalism. And, yeah, you know, what? yeah, of course, there's scandal and, and everything. Right. Yeah. But realistically, when things go to shit, it's the images of, you know, the, the NYPD running into the towers. It's, you know, it's the images of the three police officers running towards the finish line at the marathon. And that's yep. what makes an impact to people in having NYPD or Boston PD come out to be your peer support. I mean, the superheroes, in a sense. You know what I mean? Yep. You're getting talked to by people, and that's what peer support's about. It's it, You don't want to sit there and talk to somebody who's never, ever done what you've done or seen what you've seen. So when you do get into that comfort zone of... Shit, I got NYPD sitting here in front of me who just dealt yeah. with the Twin Towers not too long ago. 
I can open yeah. up to them, and it's and that's huge, and that's that's a uh, from me. I mean, that's awesome. That I I'm I'm actually very emotional thinking that that's the effort that went into saving you know the mental health of the Boston PD, and that's what exactly what was needed. And good for you guys. I um I gotta tell you this one story. A friend of mine, <laughs> my good friend Pat Monroe, who was on the Boston Fire, he uh, recently passed away, and um, actually a year ago now. But he told me that when. <laughs> They were on the pile. They were down there like the first week. They were on the pile, and you know, white dust is covering everything. They're walking back, and their engine is parked on a corner. It's all covered in white dust. And someone wrote with their finger on it, "Red Sox still suck." That is amazing. I actually won an amazing bet once. Um, it was in two thousand, two thousand seven. Um, when, no, 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 it was the last world series we won. I bet a friend who was an NYPD, um, officer and he actually worked right in Manhattan. And I bet him that he'd have to wear a Red Sox hat during a shift. If, mm. uh, if we won the Red Sox, he's like, there's no way you're winning. And we won. And he sent me like three pitches. He said, and finally his commander grabbed it off his head and stomped on the ground. He's like, I don't give a shit what bet you had. You're not wearing that damn hat. Well, yeah. That 2004 series. Yeah. When they were games to one. I remember being outside saying, thank God this thing is over. We can go home. Like that. And then it just went boom, boom, boom. And next thing you know, we're, we're... I will tell you that one of the proudest moments I ever had was uh, when they won in St. Louis in the first uh, uh, world championship. We were in the uh, base waiting for them to come, uh, come from um, Logan Airport. And I was the lead bike. The other guys were leapfrogging. And as we came off um, onto Melnia Cass Boulevard from the expressway, I'll never forget, I get goosebumps just thinking about it now. I will never forget people getting out of their cars in traffic, standing, cheering, people on, on porches. I don't even know how they all knew. People on porches all the way through over to the fence uh, out at 7 o'clock in the morning uh, yelling and screaming, you know. Yeah, that's amazing. It, Moments like that, yeah, you say, wow, that was a pretty good career I had. So. I think the only bad thing that ever happened about us winning world championships is now we can't afford to go to games anymore. <laughs> yeah, you ain't kidding. I remember when I was a kid, like, I remember it was, um, I won a, a, a contest. It was like a coloring contest for the supermarket down the street, and I got to play with Butch Hobson and Jim Rice on Fenway, and I got to do a little clinic with them. And then I remember my dad giving me and my brother like 10 bucks and go, go down to Fenway and go see a game. And we'd sit in obstructed view for 10 bucks. And yeah, like, you, yeah. you can't, you, $10, they, they laugh at you now. You can't even get anywhere. Well, that's, that's it's probably like 18 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, but, but yeah, no, I just, I like, I know that, um, I've actually, I've met with, um, former commissioner, uh, Grassi and his team before I met him at a suicide awareness, um, gala. And I know that the peer support unit and, and in Massachusetts off of Boston. It's unbelievable. I mean, they, one of the guys that I'm friends with who went through the Academy who transferred to Boston, he went through his bout and they, they helped him a lot. Um, I've gone to Dallas, Dallas PD raves about the Boston PD, um, stress unit. And like, you guys are like superheroes, especially when, you know, just building that rapport and know that it's reputable. And the fact that Guys can actually go and talk, and, if, and, and that's a hard thing, is you finally find somebody who's going to open up and talk, and then he gets burned. Well, that's not going to go good for anybody ever again, where that oh. just doesn't seem to happen at Boston. Everybody I know that's ever been through the program there raves about it. 
Yeah, it's important to, to realize that number one thing is confidentiality. I mean, you know, cops, <laughs> we're going to get fired. They're going to take our gun away or, the, or something else is going to happen. And um, it's important from day one that that is the last thing that happens. And anybody who works down there knows that. And, um, and we have ways of handling that. Uh, you, you know, after that, after the uh, marathon bombing, uh, and anybody, you know, who's listening, who has some kind of an event, uh, the negative event where people are tripping over themselves trying to help you, give them a laundry list right off the bat because in two weeks they're going to forget who you were. Yep. And one of the things uh, that happened is um, Gary Gottlieb was, was the CEO of Partners. And he asked Commissioner Davis what he could do to help cops. And Davis gave him to Linsky. Linsky gave him to me. And I gave him a laundry list about yay long figuring I'm never going to see anything. And uh, two weeks later, I'm sitting in front of the two top doctors at McLean Hospital telling them we needed a uniform service program up there. And I'll be damned if they didn't uh, they didn't come and then we started having meetings right and left and more clinicians and doctors. And in September of that year, we got our first clients. It was only about two or three beds someplace. And next thing you know, uh, it really took off. So it's been actually, uh, let's see, next year it'll be 10 years old. And probably put, probably put through like 8,000. Uh, That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, McLean is either one or two best psych hospitals in the country. To have that right in our backyard is yeah. very important. So that so, leads that leads to my next question. So what are you doing with your time now? Well, when I retired, um, myself and Tommy, I, I started a company. I was doing training for um, and peer support and suicides and all that stuff that cops don't want to talk about. And I was doing that for a few years, and then... The, uh, the field seemed flooded with people. And uh, all of a sudden, so I'm just going to take it. What I did was I actually bought a, uh, my wife and I bought a mobile home down in Truro. And I got to tell you, the best thing I ever did, you know, I could walk on the beach. Uh, when I first retired, I was taking a nap in the morning, nap at night, walk the dog, eat and go to bed, you know. <laughs> and I remember my first time walking back from the beach and I looking through the afternoon sun, through the trees, and I'm hearing the birds, and I'm looking at the flowers and the color. I'm saying, where did this come from? I never saw this stuff before because I was so wrapped up in that job. Yeah. And, uh, it's really, I, I, I am so happy um, that I'll be able to start my seventh year in retirement next month. And, you know, like I said, I went to a, uh, a wake this week of a, of a classmate who was a deputy superintendent. He sold all his, um, sold his home. What a big boat was sailing down the Caribbean, got a headache to make a long story short brain tumor and went to his wake last week. And, uh, you know, he was probably retired two years. So I try to tell people, look, at, if you don't think you think you have to keep working to make money or do this and do that, you know, you don't. I would be happier living under a bridge than working um, all those hours today. You know, you know, I'm not a rich man, but I have everything I need. And uh, you have to put family first because you never know they're going to be there tomorrow. You know? so. and, and it's funny, too, because we, I say this all the time to people that when it comes to your family, they're always the ones that are religiously standing by you. Um, yep. and, and we tend to treat them as, as secondly a lot of the time um, because whether or not we're just accustomed to that or if we've taken it for granted, not on purpose. But 
um, mm. when you actually have time. And I tell people, you gotta, you can't live beyond your means. You can't, you can't work to live. You gotta, you know yeah. what I mean? It's like, it, it's not gonna, it's not gonna be good because a lot of uh, the younger guys do that. They, they get a bite of the, of the detail and the overtime bug. And then they're constantly doing it, doing it. And then they're like, oh, I can take my kids to, to Disney and make up that I've been working so hard. So what do you have to do? Work more to do that. And it's like, if you just stop, yeah. slow down your life and just enjoy your family. And like you said, you, you, you think about it. You're finally at peace with Brian. You're like, I'm in my comfort zone. I'm hearing birds. I'm seeing the sunset. I'm walking the beach. Like it's yeah. your time. And you're finally yeah. taking your time. Yeah. So, um, I forgot to mention in, in 2012, before we started that thing, uh, two people that worked from where you started what is called the peer support quiz in, uh, what it was, was originally is by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And it was, there was a quiz designed to stem the tide of suicides in college campuses. I think MIT at the time was one of the worst. And we were able to take that and culture it around a law enforcement type um, questionnaire. And it's like 11 sets of questions. It takes about 10 minutes to go through. And... We, um, you know, it's completely confidential. And of course, cops said, I mean, even myself, I said, you know, it's going to be online. Someone's going to be able to get it. It's all encrypted. I don't see who it is. You make up a username and a password and all that stuff. I can get people help without never knowing who or where they are. And I got to tell you, the first year, 2012 to 13, uh, maybe some of them worked from the marathon, but we had 60 officers take the test and six of them were ranked high risk suicide. And three, all six of those eventually came in. Three of them were high risk. And the first guy that called me and said, I want to come in and see you. And um, I was like tickled. I said, this is pestle, yeah. you know? And he's like, he's like suicidal, homicidal, drinking heavily, divorce two or three tours in Iraq and Afghanistan would and I'm like, oh this guy gotta be a mess, right? Yep. What do you think walked into my office? You know, two o'clock in comes this kid, 28 years old, fit as a fiddle, smile from ear to ear, impeccably dressed on a spot of dust on him. Yeah. If I if that questionnaire hadn't been put out, we would have never known never in a million years. Yeah. Hey and, Brian, you know, real quick. Yeah. So this quiz is ve- available. I'm going to put the link in the in the description. It is all one word: mass cop peer support quiz dot org. That's right. Um, That's one. Yep. Yep. And you can get it. Actually, believe it or not, I was I did my homework. This was actually up on my computer before you even talked about it. So, <laughs> yeah. so this yeah. yeah. So if you do uh, Google Brian's name, the second um the second um tab that comes down, it's News Ten did an interview. They actually referenced this. But it, yeah, it's right here. And, and I will tell you, a lot of times, like you say that, you look at the guy and you think, oh, never. My brother was that way. My brother was fit, always smiling, um, in great mood, like impeccable, very neat. And he took his life and people were shocked by it. it people expect that the person that takes their life is, in lack of better terms, a shit show. Yeah. You know, they're just unkempt, like they're messy people. And, and it's not at all. It's just, it's nope. non-discriminative. And, and that's what people do. You can't, I, I, I say people, and, and you could probably attest to this because you're more reputable than me. 
with peer support units, and it's great because we have one one of our guys, Danny Houston's a retired police officer, and he's on the peer support unit and for Burlington PD forever. And it's when you start to see people's performance start to drop off, when you start to see people taking more sick time, vacation time, burning through time, um, right. struggling, their uniforms starting to look like crap. And that's when you should pull them apart because it's there's a big picture going on. This is normal stuff. And, and for supervisors to take notice to that instead of putting pen to paper and writing people up for things, mm. we might be saving more lives and we might be doing them a, a, a better service than, you know, doing the administrative thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, those those things, uh, no one wants to talk about that stuff because, um, you know, because of the punishment, not perceived punishment. But I think today it's it's we've moved eons past that there's so much help out there right now yep. but like back when i was thinking i i had tunnel vision i gotta kill i gotta kill myself i gotta kill myself you know and the same thing even though i had been exposed to clinicians etc i didn't see that put drunk etc but people have to know when the first thought the first thought a fleeting thought comes to maybe i'd be bitter up dead or should i kill myself that when you get help and that's what i'm finding a lot through this quiz is that people are very at the very beginning stages of that and that's when we hook them up like if someone takes a test they're a high high risk we dialogue with them back and forth or some will call us because our numbers are on there and um look at you don't have to tell me where you work you don't have to tell me anything else except like the general area where i can send you to a clinician mm-hmm. And the list of clinicians that we use is getting larger every day. I've been working with Irish Angel and, and uh, Joe Ramirez from Lighthouse Health and a few other people. And um, it's not just for cops, it's for cops and their families. I, I recently a, a, a child of a police officer with very complicated um, diseases, uh, mental health issues. And through the contacts I've made over the years, I was able to find a place and... Um, and that's comforting to know that at least over the years I've made enough contacts that you know I can um, I can help most people. I always pick up my phone. If I'm not picking up my phone, I'm either asleep or um, uh, but I'll call you right back. Usually I'm able to answer. Yeah, you've always and, you've always done that for me. Um, I've actually I've called just with a couple of doozies in the past, and you you, <laughs> you, you always help me. And I like I say that to people all the time. They'll say. And like and other people say, you're definitely the go-to when it comes to certain, you know, demographics of people needing help. Yeah, I mean, like you know, it's it's funny. I I do it out of passion because first of all, um, I gave up the getting paid stuff for doing training and all that stuff. And yeah, you know, I have enough money right now. I don't really need it. If someone wants me to do some consulting on a treatment center or something like that, I, I you know, people have big money. I'll do I'll do a little bit. But whenever someone's in trouble and needs help, I don't you know. We don't charge for that. It just uh, it's um, that's just something I do. It was done for me, so that's how it happens, you know. And um, so, um, so today, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm kind of like taking it easy. Uh, I don't really do much today, except I said there are some days when I feel like I'm sitting at the desk at the peer support unit. I, you know, I get two, three calls in one day, and I'm going, "Okay, God, what's going on here? Can you give me a little break, please? I'm retired." But I enjoy it because uh, I'm able to do things for people who don't have a clue on how to do it. Yeah. It is intimidating, you know, trying to wade through the insurance and the, and the hospitals and, you know, some, some are less than reputable. So we're, 
we're working with a lot of different people to find out those resources specifically for each officer, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know what? And, and it's like a lot of people just need to realize that with in no offense, but you're not unique. There's more of us out there. There's more of you out there willing to help people, Yep. you know, and that's a lot of people. I mean, you're just, you're a lot of time. You're my go-to um, because you're a wealth of knowledge and you, you have such a vast network of other individuals or programs that can help. But a lot of people will sit in the boat and they think I'm the only one in this ocean. I'm the only one I'm by myself. And, and there's, you know, there's tons of help out there. And that's what, once people really start to understand that, because a lot of the time, like the programs, like uh, the leader program, um, like even home base and, and for mass general, stuff like that, they're mm. out there. And, but it's just what? knowing that they're out there and getting it to the people who think that they're alone. I mean, once we, we get that, it, it's things are going to get so much better. And, and they have been getting so much better. Yeah. And I actually this week uh, to Wireless Angel, I was just able to find out a, a, of a couple of new programs that are around that uh, I get a follow up on. And, um, you know, it's it's great that we're, you know, these things are expanding instead of uh, and you need people. We were—I was talking with Amanda Coleman. She was back, she was over from Ireland this week. I think yep. she's leaving today. But I had lunch with her the other day. We were talking about people who are in it for the passion, mm-hmm. and those are the people you need. Because I found that people who are in it for the money or the ego or the fame—it it always goes bad, yeah. always. And um, you know, because uh, you're money motivated rather than hot motivated so that's why i tend to stay away from the money if i can um I, especially when this stuff is so i feel a lot better about it and you know what you, you help people that don't have a clue on how to get help and you know what they may go on to do the same thing i'm doing now yeah so exactly i agree yeah i actually missed friday night i was supposed to go out with uh meet up with you with joe and amanda and a bunch of other people um and a couple, let me tell you <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I got. Uh, they were all feeling too well the next day. Yeah, I had, I had, uh, I had heard, I heard um, a lot of people said that they had a couple too many, but you know, we're adults, we deal with it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 I do. I've, I've talked with Amanda a couple times on the phone, um, and I think that it's a uh, some great stuff that you know Irish Angel is going to do. Um, yeah. But it, like I said, it's all networking. We're all spokes in the wheel, and all together we'll be able to take care of all this. You know. But it's yep. definitely it's definitely needed, especially for you know our first responders and our veterans, and even now after COVID, um, the nurses and medical staff uh, are going to start to suffer too once yeah. that that my slows wife, down. My wife's an oncology nurse at the Brigham, and uh, you know I can see it in her. But she's like the nurses are like cops; I don't want to hear it. You know, I'm like mm-hmm. I went out with the girls, we had a couple of drinks, and blah 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 blah, and I go, okay, all right, I know what I'm dealing with here. But, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, you're the uh-huh. master; you're not hiding it from you. Oh. Uh, I ain't saying shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's all right. If we've had we've had a lot of swears on these before. So. <laughs> but no, Brian, I, I I thank you so much for your time. I thank you for so much of your dedication to you know saving lives and helping uh, better lives. It it's definitely I I hope you hear it as much as you should. Um, but like I said, um, everybody listening, uh, Brian, it, it's been a pleasure. Um, we can actually, like I said, you can find that at masscoppeersupportquiz.org, all one word. I'll have the link in this in the description. Um, I'll actually share it on our Facebook and stuff. Um, actually, and, you can hmm? yeah, my email, Brian at peersupportservices.net, and then um, my cell phone. You can put that in there if you want. All right. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it so much. 
Um, and don't hang up. We'll talk offline for a second. And uh, yeah. thanks again, everybody. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. And uh, thanks to our sponsors. Have a good one. Stay safe.